You are listening to episode 46 of Stoicism on Fire. Hello, everyone. This is Chris Fisher, welcoming you to the Stoicism on Fire podcast, where the ancient practice of Stoic philosophy as a way of life and rational form of spirituality is still alive. Seneca's writings reveal a committed Stoic, a pious soul, and an inspirational moral philosopher. Nevertheless, some of his actions and financial dealings have generated doubt about his genuineness. Seneca is a mixed bag if the historical record can be trusted. However, it's crucial to keep in mind that Seneca engaged in politics at the highest levels of the Roman Empire, which was the dominant world power of his time. Thus, he had powerful enemies, not the least of which was the infamous Emperor Nero. When I imagine a man like Seneca in our modern political game of character assassination, I can easily find room to believe much of his negative press was politically motivated. I do not have the time to delve deeply into the morass of conflicting scholarship about Seneca. I will only offer the following quote as a balanced opinion. Quote, Naturally, we can have no more certainty that Seneca actually followed his own moral teaching than we can have about any person from antiquity. At best, the sources allow us to extract certain implications for a prominent individual like Seneca, but common opinion about his person seems very much affected, first, by the bare fact that he was a wealthy man, as if that alone would have made him selfish and hypocritical by definition, and second, by a peculiar fusion of the tutor and counselor Seneca with the student and emperor Nero, who is best remembered for his bad morality. Here, it seems to matter little that our sources suggest that the emperor's, quote, good period was in fact precisely when he was under Seneca's influence. The stereotyped image of Seneca as a pretentious hypocrite is amazingly widespread, often simply found as a stock assertion dragged from one secondhand work to another, end quote. As Stoics, I think we should take Seneca's writings at face value. They inspired multitudes in the past and they do the same today. Many of the early Christian church fathers thought highly of Seneca and considered him a moral exemplar. Tertullian, the second-century Christian apologist, even referred to him as, quote, our Seneca. Regardless of the ambiguous historical record, Seneca's writings reveal his deeply philosophical thought and reverence for divine nature. Throughout his writings, Seneca refers to the relationship between the gods and us. In Letters 1.5, he calls this relationship a kinship and claims it is sealed by virtue. Later, in Letters 31, titled Our Mind's Godlike Potential, he suggests a committed devotion to philosophy as a way of life raises us above our human nature, toward our godlike potential. How? Through virtue, which he defines as, quote, the evenness and steadiness of a life that is in harmony with itself through all events, which cannot come about unless one has knowledge and skill of discerning things human and divine. Letters 31.8 Again, in Letters 53, Seneca argues that a mind committed to philosophy will be near to the gods and can experience the tranquility of God. He points out the tremendous power of philosophy to, quote, beat back all the assaults of chance and claims, quote, no weapon lodges in its flesh. Its defenses cannot be penetrated. 
When fortune's darts come in, it either ducks and lets them pass by or stands its guard and lets them bounce back against the assailant. Letters 53, 11-12. In Letters 41, titled God Dwells Within Us, Seneca covers the topic of Stoic physics and theology in some detail. First, he makes a clear distinction between the practices of personal religion and those of conventional religions. As I discussed in previous episodes, Stoicism was never a religion in the traditional sense with altars, temples, and priests. Nevertheless, the Stoics were deeply spiritual and reverential toward God, which they conceived as an imminent and creative force that permeates and providentially guides the cosmos and humankind. Seneca begins letter 41 by asserting, You need not raise your hands to heaven. You need not beg the temple keeper for privileged access, as if a near approach to the cult image would give us a better hearing. The God is near you, with you, inside you. I mean it, Lucilius. A sacred spirit dwells within us and is the observer and guardian of all our goods and ills. However we treat that spirit, so does the spirit treat us. In truth, no one is a good man without God. Or is there anyone who can rise superior to fortune without God's aid? It is God who supplies us with noble thoughts, with the upright counsels. In each and every good man resides a God. Which God remains unknown? Letters 41, 1-2 Scholars suggest this reference to God as unknown comes from Virgil's Aeneid, where King Evander leads Aeneas to a grove and says, quote, This hill, with its crown of leaves, is a God's home, whatever God he is. Aeneid 8, 352 As an educated Roman, Lucilius would have been familiar with Virgil's epic poem about the foundations of Roman civilization. However, this reference begs the question, why would Seneca quote a passage referring to an unknown God in a letter about the God that dwells within us? I think this is illustrative of the Stoic conception of God. Cleanthes, the second scholar of the Stoa, referred to the divinity as the God of many names in his deeply spiritual hymn to Zeus. For the Stoics, God is eminent in all of creation. Therefore, whether God, nature, Zeus, universal reason, etc., the name we choose does not matter. They all point to the same concept, divine rationality that permeates the cosmos and is the source of its ongoing existence. Next, Seneca discusses the religious awe that many people experience while in the majestic presence of nature. Quote, If you happen to be in a wood, dense with ancient trees of unusual height, where interlocking branches exclude the light of day, the loftiness and the seclusion of that forest spot, the wonder of finding above ground such a deep, unbroken shade, will convince you that divinity is there. If you behold some deeply eroded cavern, some vast chamber not made with hands but hollowed out by natural causes at the very roots of the mountain, it will impress upon your mind an intimation of religious awe. Letters 41.3 Next, Seneca makes an interesting comparison. He compares this experience of the divine in nature to the experience of encountering a sage-like person, a person who lives up to their godlike potential. He wrote, quote, so if you see a person, undismayed by peril and untouched by desire, one cheerful in adversity and calm in the face of storms, someone who rises above all humankind and meets the gods at their own level, 
Will you not be overcome with reverence before him? That eminent and disciplined mind, passing through everything as lesser than itself, laughing at all our fears and all our longings, is driven by some celestial force. Such magnitude cannot stand upright without divinity to hold it up. In large part, then, its existence is in that place from which it has come down. Letters 41, 4-5 So what is the source of this divinity which holds up the, quote, imminent and disciplined mind of this person? Well, Seneca writes, Even as the sun rays touch the earth, and yet have their existence at their point of origin, so that great and sacred mind, that mind sent down to bring us nearer knowledge of the divine, dwells indeed with us and yet inheres within its source. Its reliance is there, and there are its aim and its objective. Though it mingles in our affairs, it does so as our better. Letters 41, 4-5 In other words, the godlike mind we see in this sage-like person has its source in that great and sacred mind that permeates the cosmos. As Pierre Haydeau notes in his marvelous book, The Inner Citadel, the Stoics thought it impossible that the universe could produce human rationality unless the latter were already in some way present within the former, end quote. Many moderns gloss over passages like this because they consider them religious nonsense. However, Seneca and the other Stoics thought this conception of the cosmos the most reasonable inference from their observations of nature. Seneca is arguing for the existence of an inherent intelligence in the cosmos, and many modern scientists agree. In response to an inquiry from a young girl, Einstein wrote, quote, Everyone who is seriously involved in the pursuit of science becomes convinced that some spirit is manifest in the laws of the universe, one that is vastly superior to that of man. In this way, the pursuit of science leads to a religious feeling of a special sort, which is surely quite different from the religiosity of someone more naive. Einstein did not believe in a personal God, and he was not an advocate of organized religion. Nevertheless, he asserted that individuals of exceptional endowments could rise to a third stage of religious experience, he called cosmic religion where, quote, the individual feels the futility of human desires and aims and the sublimity and marvelous order which reveal themselves both in nature and in the world of thought. Individual existence impresses him as a sort of prison, and he wants to experience the universe as a single significant whole, end quote. Einstein's definition of a cosmic religion is consistent with the theology and religious sentiment of the Stoics, who called this intelligence within the cosmos logos and considered it divine. For the Stoics, a fragment of the same logos, rationality, which permeates and rationally orders the cosmos, also serves as our guiding principle, our hegemonicon, our rational mind. Thus, when we live according to nature as the Stoics prescribed, our rational faculty is in coherence with the divine rational mind, Logos, which is permeating the cosmos. Seneca closes letter 41 with the assertion that the highest human good is achieved by living according to our human nature, which is rational precisely because a portion of the divine dwells within us. This is a beautiful expression of a rational spirituality that is not beholden to a church hierarchy or divine scripture. Each of us can understand the divine and live in agreement with nature because a portion of divine reason dwells within us and can guide us to develop an excellent character. Stoic training, 
disciplines our sense, desires, and actions so that we can make progress toward that good flow in life that the ancient Stoics promised. Again, in letter 73, Seneca highlights the Stoic doctrine that considers our rational faculty, our hegemonicon, a fragment of the logos, that universal reason. He emphasizes our role is the cultivation of the divine seed within us by bringing our rational faculty into coherence with the logos to live according to nature. Quote, Are you astounded that a human being can go to the gods? God comes to human beings. No, it is more intimate than that. God actually comes into human beings, for excellence of mind is never devoid of God. Seeds of divinity are scattered in human bodies. If a good gardener takes them in hand, the seedlings resemble their source and grow up equal to the parent plant. But poor cultivation, like sterile and boggy soil, kills the plant and produces only a crop of weeds. Letters 73.16 Seneca offers another expression of the imminent God of Stoicism in Letters 83. God knows our soul because our soul is a fragment of the divine soul. Quote, You tell me to describe every one of my days from start to finish. You must think well of me if you suppose there is nothing in them that I would hide from you. Our lives should indeed be like that, lived as if in the sight of others. Even our thoughts should be conducted as though some other person could gaze into our innermost breast, for there is someone who can. What use is there in keeping a secret from human beings? Nothing is hidden from God. God is in our rational minds. God enters into the midst of our thoughts. I say enters as if he had ever left. Letters 83.1 In Letters 92, titled What We Need for Happiness, Seneca points out humankind's natural affinity for God and our inclination to seek union with divinity, to live according to nature. Quote, But the one who as the poet says, has courage and manly spirit in his body, is level with the gods, and proceeds in their direction, mindful of his origin. There is nothing wrong in striving to climb up to the point one descended from. Indeed, there is no reason for you not to believe that there is something divine in one who is actually a part of God. This universe that houses us is a unity and is God. We are God's companions. God's limbs. Our mind has this capacity. It is transported thither unless it is weighed down by faults. Just as our bodily posture is erect with its gaze toward the heavens, so our mind can stretch forth as far as it wishes, having been formed by the very nature of the world to want things on a divine scale. If it exerts the strength that belongs to it and grows to its fullest extent, it needs no route but its own to reach the summit. Letters 92.30. In the passage above, Seneca argued it is natural for our guiding principle, our portion of the divine mind, to seek a return to whence it came. To commune with the divine, we must exclusively value excellence of character, virtue, and treat externals, health, wealth, etc., as indifference. In this state, our body is considered a necessary burden to be looked at but not loved. Letters 92, 33. Here we see an example of preferred indifference, which are often misunderstood. The Stoic is not indifferent to his physical well-being. He looks after his body as a necessary burden. The Stoic does not despise his body or feel a need to mortify his flesh. The body is not evil. 
it is an indifferent, which means that it has no inherent value, either good or bad, with regard to our moral character. This state of mind regarding externals requires the discipline of assent and the discipline of desire. In Letters 107, Seneca addresses the providential nature of the cosmos and encourages Lucilius to be, quote, ready and prepared, end quote, like a soldier to respond to fate. He contrasts the strong character of the person who willingly surrenders to fate with the puny degenerate who finds fault with the gods rather than himself. This language counters the common conception that trust in providence is akin to resignation. Quote, we must adapt our minds to this law, following it and obeying it. No matter what happens, we should think that it had to happen and not wish to reproach nature. It is best to endure what you cannot correct and to go along uncomplainingly with the divinity who is in charge of the entire course of events. It is a poor soldier who groans as he follows his commander. Let us then tirelessly and vigorously accept our orders. Let us not desert the course taken by this most beautiful of worlds, with which all our future experience is interwoven. That's how we should live and speak, with fate finding us ready and prepared. This is the strong character that has surrendered himself to fate. In contrast, we have the puny degenerate, struggling, thinking ill of the world order, and preferring to correct the gods rather than himself. Letters 107, 9-12 Again in Letters 107, Seneca suggests that a flawless mind which rivals that of God is the ultimate goal of a life of human excellence. Quote, What is this good? Just this. A mind made flawless, a mind that rivals the divine, that elevates itself above the human sphere and places nothing beyond itself. You are a reasoning animal. What then is the good in you? It is perfect reason. Take your reason from where it is now to its own ultimate achievement. Let it grow to its fullest possible extent. Letters 124-23 In his book on leisure, after discussing the two commonwealths, the lesser one that includes the citizen of a particular city and the greater one that consists of all of humankind and the gods, Seneca points out that some people serve only one while others serve both. He argues we should serve the greater commonwealth during leisure through contemplation on the natural philosophy, morality, and theology. On Leisure 4, 1-2 while Seneca's letters to Lucilius and his moral essays are the most commonly read of his works, his books on natural questions are rich with material validating his commitment to Stoic physics and theology. Seneca's natural questions is often neglected because he uses the subject of meteorology to discuss Stoic physics. In his single-volume commentary on Seneca, Inwood writes, quote, Understandable though it may be, the relative neglect of the natural questions is regrettable. For although Seneca's primary interest was certainly ethics, and although, as Barnes has recently reiterated, his interest in logic was merely utilitarian, physics is not a marginal or merely subordinate branch of philosophy for Seneca. Not only is a knowledge of physics useful for moral improvement, it is also clearly the superior science in Seneca's eyes, just as it was for Chrysippus. And for both philosophers, theology took pride of place within physics. End quote. Reading natural questions will dispel any doubts about Seneca's commitment to Stoic orthodoxy in physics and theology. 
In his translator notes at the beginning of Seneca's Natural Questions, Harry Hine offers the following about Seneca in general and his work in particular. Quote, Throughout the work, Seneca's discussions are conducted within the framework of Stoic physics. He assumes that the world is controlled by a rational deity who can be identified with reason, nature, providence, and fate. There are no chance or random events in the world, for everything is controlled by the divinely ordained chain of cause and effect. End quote. In the Preface to Natural Questions, Book 1, Seneca opens by asserting that the study of physics, specifically theology, is, quote, more elevated and more noble, end quote, than the study of ethics, and lists several reasons why. Next, Seneca proclaims his thankfulness to nature for being discernible and provides a list of physical and theological questions that he loves considering. The list includes, what is the material the universe is made of? Who is the creator or guardian, the God of the universe? Is God concerned with humans? Is God imminent and acting in the world? Or did he create the universe and remains remote? Is God part of the world or the world itself? It is important to note that Seneca does not question the existence of divinity in the cosmos. He ponders its nature. Like other Stoics, Seneca assents to a divine and providentially ordered cosmos as the most reasonable inference from observations about nature. Seneca follows the above list of theological ponderings with a remarkable statement. Quote, If I were not allowed access to these questions, it would not have been worth being born. For what could give me a reason to be glad that I had been included in the ranks of the living? Digesting food and drink? Stuffing full this body, which is vulnerable, delicate, and will perish if it is not consistently replenished? And living as nurse to a sick man, fearing death, the one thing to which we are born? Take away this invaluable blessing, and life is not worth the sweat and the panic. Natural Questions 1, 44. Seneca closes the preface by comparing our mind to the mind of God. He expresses bewilderment at the foolishness of those who profess wisdom, yet assert the universe was created by accident, and continues to operate without any plan by some haphazard process. Next, Seneca offers an unambiguous expression of his assent to the Stoic conception of a providentially ordered cosmos. Quote, so what is the difference between God's nature and our own? The mind is the superior part of us. In him, there is nothing apart from mind. He is nothing but reason. Although such great error grips the mortal sphere that human beings think that the most beautiful, the most organized, the most reliable thing that exists is subject to accident, at the mercy of chance, and therefore disorderly, with all the lightning bolts, clouds, storms, and other things that batter the earth and the neighborhood of the earth. And this foolishness is not confined to the uneducated but it also affects those who profess wisdom. There are people who think that they themselves have a mind, one that has foresight, administering in detail both its own and other people's affairs, but that this universe in which we too find ourselves is carried along without any plan, by some haphazard process, or by a nature that does not know what it is doing. Natural Questions 1, 14-15 in the Preface to Natural Questions, Book 3, Seneca repeatedly asks, what is most important in human life? And he lists seven things. Using our mind to conquer our faults. Relinquishing our desires and aversions. 
being able to endure adversity with a glad mind, to experience whatever happens as though you wanted it to happen to you, developing moderation and courage, refusing to let bad intentions enter your mind, raising your spirit high above chance, trusting in providence, and finally, being prepared to die at any moment. I will close with Seneca's essay on providence. Seneca opens with the perpetual question regarding theodicy. Quote, you have asked me, Lucilius, why it is the case that if the universe is governed by providence, many bad things happen to good men. On Providence 1.1, Seneca suggests there is a kinship between man and the gods, which is sealed by virtue. Then, after a few classical arguments designed to convince Lucilius of the ordered and providential nature of cosmos, Seneca turns theodicy, the study of evil, on its head. How? By asserting that nothing bad can happen to a good man, on Providence 2.1. Why? Seneca points to the athletes, who only remain strong by testing themselves against worthy adversaries. The hardship of training makes the athlete strong, so he welcomes it. Quote, Clearly, good men must do the same. They must not flinch at hardship and difficulties and must not level complaints against fate. But whatever happens, they must find the good in it. Turn it to good. It is not what you face that counts, but how you face it. On Providence 2.4. Then Seneca provocatively asks, Are you surprised that if God, who loves good men so much and wants them to be as good and outstanding as they can be, allots them a fortune to exercise against? On Providence 2.7. And what becomes of the person who welcomes these challenges? Seneca declares, quote, He is a spectacle worthy to be looked on by God as he inspects his own creation. Here is a God-worthy duel, a brave man matched against misfortune especially if the man has issued the challenge himself. On Providence 2.9, Seneca makes a clear causal link between the trials we face in life and the development of our moral character. Thus, Seneca offers the following as a consolation and inspiration for those who are sent to Providence and willingly undergo the seeming misfortunes of life. Quote, To fashion a man who can genuinely be called a man, a stronger fate is needed. For him, the way will not be flat. He must go up and down, and he must be tossed by waves, and must guide his vessel on a stormy sea. He must hold his course against fortune. Many things will happen that are hard and rough, but things he can soften and smooth out himself. Fire proves gold. Misery, brave men. On Providence 5.9 Seneca was a committed Stoic. He frequently referred to the Stoa as our school. And I believe Seneca provides an inspirational example of a life well lived. Moreover, I think we do Seneca and ourselves a grave injustice when we ignore or diminish his writings. He is our Seneca. Likewise, if you find yourself inspired by the writings of Seneca, you are wise to remember his trust in the divine and providential cosmos and his kinship with the God that dwells within us. That trust allowed Seneca to face the vicissitudes of life and even death courageously and appropriately. As I noted earlier, in book three of his Natural Questions, Seneca repeatedly asks, what is most important in human life? And in the middle of Seneca's response to that question, he offers this advice, which is both perennial and timely. Quote, 
Whenever you sink back from engagement with the divine to the human level, your sight will go dim, just like the eyes of those who return from bright sunlight to dense shadow. Natural Questions 311 The Stoic prescription for true well-being is a life lived in agreement with nature, where nature is divinely ordered by universal reason. Logos Nature provided each of us with a fragment of that same universal reason as our rational faculty. If we allow that fragment of divine reason to guide our thoughts and direct our lives toward the ideal of the Stoic sage, our lives begin to transcend our human nature and take on the characteristics of divine nature. Alternatively, when we choose to disengage from universal reason, we sink quickly to the level of human desires, aversions, and intentions that are not in agreement with nature. We may never reach sagehood and experience that state of eudaimonia described by the Stoics. However, we can make progress toward that end. We can train our minds to handle impressions correctly, desire what is genuinely good, virtue, and fear what is truly bad, vice. We can strive to act appropriately amidst the many preferred and dispreferred indifferent events that will come into our life. We can strive to remain engaged with the divine and providentially ordered cosmos and thereby transcend the limitations of our human nature and rise toward our godlike potential. Thank you for listening to Stoicism on Fire. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider leaving a positive review on Apple Podcasts. That tells others that this podcast is worth listening to and helps introduce more people to the ancient spiritual practices of the Stoics. If you're interested in exploring traditional Stoicism further, you will find plenty of resources at traditionalstoicism.com. If you're ready for an online mentored training program, check out the College of Stoic Philosophers at collegeofstoicphilosophers.org. That is where I received my initial education and training in the theory and practice of Stoicism. If you're interested in a social media environment where you can find some like-minded fellow travelers, join us on Facebook in the Traditional Stoicism group. If you have feedback for me or a great podcast idea, send me an email at chris at traditionalstoicism.com. Until next time, I hope you will continue practicing the traditional form of Stoicism where the cosmos is alive with the meaning and purpose of the divine creative fire of the ancient Stoics. I wish you well and encourage you to keep your practice of Stoicism on fire.